Well, let me, um, let me first say uh, welcome. My name is Cameron. I'm the pastor here at Conduit. If you were here last week as a first-time visitor, you might not know who I am. <laughs> um, and thank you, all of those who asked if I am feeling better. Yes, I am feeling much better after um, a little bout with, um, I think, food poisoning. I don't know, it must have been that garage or that gas station sushi or something like that. But, um, but I am feeling much better, so thank you very much. I want to especially thank, um, I don't, where is he? Mr. Jake Hirschman. There he is back there. Um, Mr. Jake Hirschman. It's okay to give him a round of applause because I really like to give him a round of applause. Um, who, so, who so faithfully brought the word of God for us um, last week. And um, there, there is nothing more difficult for me um, than to not be in the pulpit, so to speak, to, to give up that, that spot. And then in the instances where you give up that spot and then the person who is here does not treat it with like respect and honor and dignity and faithfulness to you, um, there is nothing, it, it doesn't even make me sad, it just makes me angry, right? Like, I am very protective over you um, and, um, and over this, this position. And so to have, to, to have the confidence of, the confidence of um, someone who I, who I love and I know and who I am, uh, I know is a faithful man and a growing man of God, um, be here to share the word with you. It's just like, it made being sick easier, if that makes any sense. You know, it didn't double the pain. Um, so uh, we appreciate Jake and thank you. And, and um, we're going to, uh, I might get sick again sometime soon um, so that he can be uh, up here and I can, I can hear him preach in person. Um, a few announcements for you this morning just before we go any further. Uh, the first is that um, the 26th at 7 p.m. here at the church is a um, women's worship night. So that's a function of our, our women's ministry here, and that will be an all-women's worship night. I heard this morning, though, that if you are, if you are a male and you really like just have to worship that night and be here to worship that they will not kick you out. So, um, but um, that is uh, for the women's ministry. P please come and worship um, uh, here on March 26th at 7 p.m. Um, also, starting tomorrow night here at the church at 6 p.m., um, Ellen and Jake Felt, um, our beloved Ellen and Jake, are... Um, starting a new small group, and it will it will focus on worship, um, not necessarily the like actually worshiping, although that will be a part of it, of course. Um, but that will be here tomorrow night, every Monday night at six o'clock. If you have any questions about that, um, feel free to see Ellen or um, Jake, who's up in the the sound booth after. Um, and then one one more announcement. Um, these flowers and the flowers out on the coffee bar are uh, in memory of our beloved 
Flo Quatrone, who went to be with the Lord um, this past week. And so please continue to keep um, Flo's family, Wayne, and um, those, of, those in her family that you might, that you might know. Uh, please keep them in your prayers as they are uh, just struggling with the, with the very real loss. And of course, we are here as well. Um, just such a, a beautiful and faithful and, uh, and, and warm lady who is now with Jesus. And let me tell you what, she's having a much better day than you and I are having. Um, and if she could trade, she wouldn't trade. She would not come back if she had an opportunity. Trust me. Um, but uh, these are just in memory of, uh, in memory of her. So um, would you pray with me as we, um, as we dive into the word this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your graciousness to us in um, health and in sickness, Lord, in plenty and in want, um, in uh, days where the sun is shining and on days where there's just clouds. Lord, you are in control. Not only are you in control, Lord, but you are good. Lord, help us today to detach ourselves from the thought or the feeling that the reality of our circumstances dictates the goodness of you. Lord, when we stand on the truth that you are good, Lord, it does not necessarily change the reality of our circumstances, but it does change our focus to a place where we can praise, to a place where we can worship, and allows us, Lord, um, to move through in a way of dignity, in a way of um, faithfulness. Lord, Uh, Be with the preaching of your word this morning that either through me or in spite of me, your Holy Spirit would speak down into the innermost beings of every man, woman, and child, hearing my voice in Jesus' name. Amen. So Easter's coming up. Um, Did you know that today is, um, I've told you this over the last year or so that I, I write down in my, every week when I write my sermon in my like, little sermon notebook here, I write at the top of the margin, like just what's going on in the world, and just so in years forward I can look back and remember the circumstances surrounding this, and this is coronavirus week number 53. Um, so congratulations, you made it a year, right? And guess what, you're alive still, right? And the sun is still shining, right? And God is still good. And, and, um, and you have learned, and you have grown, and you have maybe realized things about yourself, or your relationship with God, or maybe the uh, exorbitant amount of time that you have spent with your kids or your spouse really has taught you some things, right? Um, I'm grateful for it. I'm choosing to be grateful for it. As we come up into Easter here at the beginning of April, I, I want to give us a little bit of space before Easter to um, 
align our thoughts, right? And uh, align our hearts and uh, to, to, to set us on a good path for um, celebration on Easter Sunday. Uh, because uh, celebration on Easter Sunday comes really as a response to what happened on the Friday before it, right? Like, Easter Sunday is not really Easter Sunday without Good Friday, right? And that there were, that there were events and experiences that precipitated even the uh, arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, um, the death of Jesus before that, all right? And so, if we can think in our minds to back up just a few steps from Easter Sunday, so we back up into Good Friday, which is a good segue for it. We will have our Good Friday service this year. We always have a Good Friday service. It'll be 7 p.m. on that Friday. It's an awesome service. It's a communion service here. If you can make it, I would really, really recommend it because it is going to be, it is going to be um, basically Good Friday sermon, Easter Sunday sermon are going to be like part one, part two of the same sermon. Okay? Of course, it'll be online as well. But we like to back up even in the life and experience of Jesus what was happening in Jesus' life before he was arrested, tried, crucified, died, and then, of course, before he was put in the tomb and then the, the stone was rolled away and Mary came being the, the proclaimer of the resurrection of Jesus to the rest of the disciples. All of that fits into one. We're going to read, I want to read from Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Which is just a few short steps before Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last time in Matthew chapter 21. But Matthew chapter 16, Jesus does something that he did many times in his ministry. Um, he, he told his disciples exactly what was going to happen to him. Jesus was not unaware of what the path for his life was. Right? He was very, he was keenly aware of what was to happen to him. And you can see how keenly aware he was, even in the way that he told his disciples about it. So Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? 
Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. All right. So, as I just said, like Jesus was keenly aware of what was to happen to him. In fact, he was so keenly aware that Matthew, in writing about what Jesus, Jesus' awareness, talked about all the musts that happen to Jesus. He says things like this. Um, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. That he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. That there was a, that there was a must factor to the things that Jesus was about to experience. That there was, it was kind of a, it was a non-negotiable, non-negotiable aspect of the, the plan and purpose of God for Jesus is that, that there, there was no other option. He must be arrested. Um, he must be tried and killed on the third day. Now, if we're, if we're thinking people and we're honest about our thinking, um, I know that the musts often are a little uncomfortable for me. What do you mean he must? What do you mean he has to? What do you mean this was, a, this was non-negotiable? I mean the musts, I have musts in my life that are that I'm not too like that I'm not too keen on, right? I must do this, I must do that, we must do that. Things that are non-negotiable for life. Well, well, if if the musts of Jesus' story are uncomfortable for you, know that they are were uncomfortable for Peter, arguably his closest disciple as well, because when Jesus began to explain to Peter or to the disciples that these things must happen to him. What was Peter's response to Jesus? Absolutely not. I don't know where all of this must language is coming from. I don't know why you think that that these things have to happen, that you will be arrested, that you will be killed. Peter essentially saying, Lord, there is no way that I, that we are going to allow this to happen. In fact, Lord, not only are we not going to allow this to happen, you can't honestly tell me that you being arrested, you being tried, crucified, killed, placed in a tomb, that that is a part of God's eternal plan. Explain that one to me. You can't possibly tell me that what you are about to experience, Jesus, is what God the Father actually has planned for you. I won't let it be a part of the plan, Peter says. Here's, here's, my, here's my thoughts on this, that Peter was reacting against two different things. One, he was reacting against what he believed the Messiah would look like. Who he thought the Messiah would be. You know, this long prophesied, expected Savior of the Israelites, of the Jewish people, who would, who would come as a, 
as a, as a person of God, right? God in flesh and would redeem the people. And, and Peter's understanding of that redemption had probably everything to do with the Messiah being a political, military, governmental ruler who would come and provide strong leadership to the Israelite people so that they could rise up, that they would be great again, and so that they would no longer be under the proverbial boot of the Roman Empire. And so that Jesus, the Messiah, the idea of him being arrested and killed by that government, by that empire, was unconscionable to him. Like, wait a minute, no, 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 no. The Messiah is supposed to do this. Like, free us from oppression to the Romans. So there's this idea of Peter not really understanding what Jesus came to set people free from. As maybe a little bit um, of application to our lives where we have an idea of what Jesus should be setting us free from. Where the circumstances of our lives dictate that Jesus actually knows what we need set free from. He actually knows. And so he begins to, he be, he begins to put circumstances and situations and experiences and relationships in motion to, to transform the trajectory of your life you're over here screaming for God to free you from this. God actually wants to free you from this. The second thing it, um, in, that I think Peter was dealing with was just this, which we're going to talk about. This is primarily what, what I want to talk about this morning. Is the human tendency to, be, to have no idea how to wrestle with the reality of suffering. To, to not really have any good box in our minds or in our relationship with God to place the reality and redemptive purposes of suffering. And I'll tell you this. If you, if we, do not develop a what I'm going to call a, a theology of suffering. Life, life will be, um, life can seem, life will be very bleak and very hopeless. If we don't come to, if we don't come to some reconciliation in our own minds about suffering, then. Then, then life looks pretty hopeless because there's a lot of suffering in life. And if suffering is just suffering, that's a pretty hopeless existence. That's pretty bleak. That's a, you, 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 know if you, you know that you don't have a, a really developed sense of the purpose and plan of suffering and God's eternal plan if um, you're kind of always waiting for the next shoe to drop. Because suffering has just become a reality that you experience that happens to you rather than a tool that God uses to take you someplace that you're unwilling to go on your own. 
Um, so if we don't wrestle with the idea that there is a theology of suffering, then life can be a very bleak and hopeless. Now, you might be asking the question, well, that seems like an awfully um, seminarian, pastoral, Christianese term, theology of suffering, and I won't disagree with you on that, right? So um, let me, in a little bit more um, straightforward terms, let me say this. What is a theology of suffering, and why do we have to have it? Theology of suffering. A God-centered, biblically-centered, eternally-minded understanding of the existence and purpose of suffering and pain. To develop a theology of suffering means that I have, a, I have an understanding of the existence and purpose of suffering and pain that is centered on the character and nature of God, that is centered on the truth that is revealed to us in Scripture, and that, and that, is, that is within the guardrails of God's eternal purposes. And, and this, is a, this is a huge issue for the church and for us today is that we have developed an incredibly temporary and individual understanding of our Christian faith. What I mean when I say that is our, our understanding of Christian faith is temporary. It means, it means that we, we have been taught and we have learned, right, that, that Christian faith is... Um, is immediately circumstantial, right? That it should, that should, that it, if it's not applying immediately to the exact situation that I'm dealing with right now in my life, then, then I, I should cast it off as not being, uh, not being helpful, right? Or like it, it needs to help me right now. It needs to speak to me right now. It needs to be, and it needs to speak to me as an individual person right now. And I'm not arguing that that there is not at, like. At, like pinpoint application into our lives for the Word of God and the Spirit of God. But, but look and understand this, is that, is that Christian faith, Christian life, even as we see Jesus is going to explain to us in this portion of Scripture, is an eternally minded faith. Which means our perspective for life is not our immediate circumstances. It is the whole of our eternal destiny. Right, And so if we are eternally short-sighted or circumstantially short-sighted, where, where all of our thinking, all of our emotions, all of our beliefs, all of our actions are only meant to affect us in the here and now, then suffering and pain will still be quite hopeless. Because the redemptive purpose for suffering and pain is not always realized right now. It is often realized in years down the line. It is often realized in decades down the line. It is sometimes realized in eternity. Because the same way in which Easter Sunday can't function without Good Friday, right? Um, the, the hope that we have for the place that God or that Jesus is preparing for us in heaven, 
the hope that we have there, what's so exciting about that is, holy crap, I get to escape this place. And the suffering that comes with it, and the pain that comes with it, and the bondage that comes with it, and all that, the brokenness that comes with it. Like, God, God is eternally, like, eternally making boundaries for me to travel in. So, developing this God-centered, biblically-centered, eternally-minded understanding of the existence of um, and purpose of suffering and pain is incredibly important for us if we're dealing with suffering and pain. Or, we could just conclude, which is often what we do, what some people do, and I'm not, this is not a judgment, I'm just saying that this is the other side of it, right? Is that we, we either develop this God-centered, biblically-centered, eternally-minded understanding of suffering and pain, or we conclude that God is mean, that He doesn't care, and that He's unwilling to, change, to, to end the, the circumstances of my pain. Right? I'm in pain. God knows it. He's not changing it. Therefore, he must not care. Or, there is a purpose that is centered on his nature, that is written on the pages of Scripture, that is, that is eternally minded, that I have to focus my eyes on rather than over here. Okay? So, um, so if we come to this place of understanding that, that suffering in life does have a purpose, that suf- suffering is not purposeless, that it, it has meaning, it has function in our lives, then we, then we can see why Jesus submitted Himself to suffering as a, as a necessary part and plan of God's Redemptive work. This is, the, this is the ultimate show of submission to God's plan no matter what the circumstances bear on me personally was Jesus' example. You see, because for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, the prophets in the Jewish world had been, had been prophesying that the Messiah would come. That the Messiah would come and would... Um, would free the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, from their oppression, would establish them as, again, sons and daughters of God, reestablishing the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, that it would be, that all of those things would be renewed and it would come at the work of the Messiah. And everyone had ideas about the, who the Messiah was going to be, and about what the Messiah was going to look like, and what the Messiah was going to do, and when he was going to come. And so you, you would often see, in fact, you see the precursor to Jesus, who was John the Baptist, right? The chief priests and the elders, they came to him, are you the Messiah? John says. They like, ah, no, not me. I come to prepare the way for him, though. I come to prepare the way for the person 
whose sandals I am not even fit to tie. So there was, all this, there was always speculation about who it would be. And one of these things that, one of these things that in the, the political climate, you know how, I'm, I'm sure this never happens to any of you, right? Never happens to you, it never happens to me. But you know how when there is stark evidence of how something is going to happen or is happening, but we refuse to listen to it or to look at it because we already know that it's got to be this way. I heard, like, no, I know that that's what that says over there, and all the evidence points to that. I know all the research points to that. I, I know that. I, I know what all the experts say, but I'm, I'm really telling you, I just feel like it's going to be this over here. Probably not. Okay? And for the Jewish people, there was all of this evidence over here, all of this prophecy in the Old Testament about who the Messiah was going to be. And all of them over there, under the boot of Roman oppression, were like, nah, not like that. He's going to be a military ruler. Strong. Great political mind. Going to rally the Jewish people back into the, to rebuild the temple. Like, it's going to be great. The sense of nationalism, of the Jewish government and nationalism was going to rise up again. All the while, the, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before, was like, that's not what the Messiah looks like. That's not what he's going to look like, right? So what did the Spirit of God reveal to the prophet Isaiah about who the Redeemer would look like? Or what he would look like? Who was, what the Messiah was going to look like? This is incredible, okay? There's a little bit of scripture here. Y'all right with a little bit of scripture? Okay, so let's go back to Isaiah chapter 52. If you don't know where Isaiah is, all right, take your Bible. Watch, we'll do it together. Open it to the middle. Okay, so if you hit like Psalms and Proverbs, you're going to go to the right, right? If you hit uh, Jeremiah, go to the left. Isaiah is a really big book right in the middle of the Bible. It's got about 50-some chapters. 60-some chapters. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52. It's on page 614 in my Bible. Not that that matters for you, but... <laughs> Alright, so... We're going to read, starting at chapter, chapter 52, verse 13, we're going to read the rest of 52 and all of 53, chapter 53, okay? Because this is the part where, where Isaiah describes, one, one place where he describes who the Messiah was going to be. And just, just listen to how he describes this revolutionary um, savior of the people. Okay? I'm going to sit down. See, my servant will act wisely. 
He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, or for, they were, for what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to how he describes the Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He, would, he was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had, no, had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Listen. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his land. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. The path of the Messiah was not one of political conquest or military gain or governmental rule or reestablishing the temple. It was one of suffering. And if you ask, well, why? Why must that be the way? Because the redemptive purpose for suffering for the Messiah 
was for you and I. Well, that's not a very good purpose. That's not a very good reason. Isn't it, though? Isn't it, though? If we were to suffer on behalf of someone else, if we were to give our lives on behalf of someone else, isn't that the most extreme expression of love that anyone could ever express? That the suffering that the Messiah was to, um, was to experience was not to make some, some existential point, but it was for the benefit of you and I. You look at, back at Isaiah 53, starting at verse 4, you see that all of the suffering was for a point, right? Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. The suffering of the Messiah was necessary for the redemption of your souls and the forgiveness of your sins. Peter wanted somehow a workaround around this. Like, like Jesus, can't we do it another way? Can't we do it another way? Ironically, the time, like the passage of Scripture where Peter was like, no, Jesus, we're not doing that. That's not the plan. Ironically, that's right after, if you look back in Matthew chapter 16, right after Peter finally confessed Jesus as Lord. Peter's like, yeah, you are Lord. You are Christ. You are Messiah. But, but you're not, we're not doing this your way. <laughs> we're going to do this our own way. So in this, like, in this kind of classic passage in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, it says, turns to Peter and says what to him when Jesus is like, no, Lord, I'll never let that happen. He turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in, thing, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Meaning, a couple things. One, Jesus saw that the suffering that he was about to experience was initiated and purposed by God and that the enemy, Satan, was intent once again to try and get Jesus to kind of work around the suffering that he was to experience. Because if you think about it this way, if the purpose of the Messiah's suffering, according to the prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53, is the redemption of all of creation, then who, hmm, who would want to thwart the redemption of all of creation? 
Who would want that not to happen? Who wants you to remain in bondage? Who wants you to remain oppressed? Who wants you to remain in perpetual habits of sinfulness? Who wants your eternal destiny to be the same as his? Maybe, just maybe, the person who tried to convince Jesus to do an end around his ministry of suffering once before. Ever think of that? See, the enemy wants and wanted to convince us, to convince Jesus that redemption could happen without suffering. And do you know this? The enemy is still trying to convince you of that. The enemy is still trying to convince you, right, that that redemption happens outside of a season of suffering. And that if you're suffering, well, that just must mean that God doesn't love you because if you're suffering, he must be really mad at you. He must really be just punishing you and just trying to show you how mean he is and doesn't really love you. And you should probably, you know, probably don't go to church anymore. Because if you're having doubts about suffering and wondering why things are happening, like, you know, probably church probably isn't the best place for you. So I wouldn't go to your small group anymore either. In fact, if you can find some other reasons to just like not going to church anymore and like some excuses when people ask you, just like make something up. Because you don't really want to tell them, right? That you're struggling or you're suffering or you have questions because that would mean you don't have any faith and da-da-da. Ever heard that story before? In your own head? Something similar, maybe? See, the enemy wants to convince you that suffering is evidence of God being far away and separated from you, where the examples that we're seeing in Scripture, even in the life of Jesus, is that suffering was part of fulfilling the actual plan of God for all of creation, and specifically in Jesus' life. And right, so if I'm if I'm suffering, I'm like, well, this this hurts, it's kind of painful, I don't like it at all, but I know. Right, that we serve a God who is all about redemptive purposes and nothing is laid to waste when God is on the job. My suffering will not end in suffering. My suffering will, re- will end in redemption, period. And it is only the task of the enemy to convince you that your suffering is only meant for you to be in pain and, for, and has no eternal or good purposes in your life. It's just all bad. That's what he tried to do to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, right? And the original temptation. He took, let's stink and go there. I'm going to start getting fired up here in a second. Matthew chapter 4, right? Verse, uh, let's see, verses 8. The temptation of Jesus, right? Jesus um, hadn't started his ministry yet. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Right? Sounds like being a Messiah, right? All of this I will give to you, the enemy said, if you will bow down and worship me. <laughs> what is Satan tra- Hey, Jesus, look. If you want to be Messiah, if you want to be Savior, if you want to be ruler and leader, 
if you want to be high and exalted, if you want the name that is above every other name, that, it, um, that all knees will bow and every tongue confess, if you want to be sat high on a throne, listen, you don't need to go through all of this dog and pony show of three years with the disciples, they never get anything you say, blah, 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 super frustrating, right? And then you're going to get arrested and you're going to die and it's going, to be, it's, going to, it's going to be painful and everything. We can just skip all that. Bow down to me now and I'll give you all of this. Yeah, Satan trying to do like an end, end run, right, around the plan of God for suffering to happen to the Messiah to give purpose, right, by convincing Jesus that he doesn't need to suffer. You don't need to do this. Of course, we know what Jesus says, away from me, Satan. Kind of sounds like, get behind me, Satan, right? Away from me, Satan. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. See, this idea, the idea of a suffering Messiah, the idea of a suffering Messiah was a stumbling block to Peter. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. And it becomes a stumbling block to us because we have so often been told Right, that that suffering, uh, we have we we we've so quickly um, attached suffering to this anti-God perspective. Like if suffering is happening, God cannot be involved. That's the way that we've that that's that's what we've done. Right, we've attached suffering to God's not here. And. Blessing and favor and health to God is here. Where in reality, the scripture attaches suffering to God here. The suffering has an eternal redemptive purpose. And so because we've so quickly attached suffering to anti-God, rather than seeing the redemptive purposes and process that suffering allows us to experience... See, the idea of avoiding suffering at all cost is a man-made idea. It's not a God-made idea. Because even the way of following Jesus is the way of embracing the eternal purpose of suffering. Jesus connects following Him with embracing suffering. This is not a seeker-sensitive, like, Christianity is great type of message, right? Like, listen, you need to know that the way of Jesus is a way of suffering. That the path of Jesus is a path of suffering. And Jesus does not withhold this from his disciples as he predicts his own death in Matthew chapter 16. Look at the words. Then Jesus said to his disciples, verse 24, same passage we've been reading from, right? Right after he rebukes Satan, get behind me, Satan, you do not have in, thing, have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, right? If anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is an instrument, this is a symbol of life to us, right? 
When Jesus was saying that to his disciples, you must take up your cross to follow me, the cross in the Roman world was a sign of what? Death. Crucifixion. Suffering. Shame. Pain. When Jesus says you must take up your cross and follow me, he was saying, hey look, if you are going to follow me, you must learn to embrace the way of suffering. And what is the most suffering, painful thing that you can do? Forever who wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. It's to say, my life is not my own. What is the most painful thing that we can possibly do? I am not the Lord of my life. My life is not my own. I die to myself in order that I might be alive to the purposes of God. I pick up my cross daily. I die to myself daily. Saying that in order for me to actually live, I must first die. And that is exactly what Jesus says. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Lose control of your life. You want to save it? You want to find eternal purpose for the suffering that you're experiencing? Right? Let go of the control of trying to circumstantially change every little circumstance that happens to you as if it's something that God has not designed to perfect you in holiness and the purpose of His eternal work in you. See, because the, the characteristic of disciple suffering is the moment-by-moment, day-by-day decision to die to myself. Die to yourself. You want to change the suffering in your home? Die to yourself. Die to yourself. My home life is such a mess. Die to yourself. You want to save your life? Lose it. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, in a world where we so, we work so hard to avoid suffering and pain, you know what I think? Is I think that sometimes God lets us avoid it. I think when we work really, really hard to avoid suffering and pain, sometimes we can. But maybe your efforts to avoid all suffering and pain at all costs have actually robbed you of the things that God has purposed to be produced in you and through that suffering.
Man, I am suffering in my marriage. I am suffering in my relationship over here. And it is painful, right? And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to avoid it. Emotionally detach, physically detach, no more physical intimacy, no more spiritual intimacy, no more emotional intimacy. I'm going to avoid the pain that is over here. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to walk away. I'm, I'm not going to suffer under that. I'm not going to be in pain under that. Now, I'm not saying that this is a 100% all the time. This is the way that we deal with issues in our marriage. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me say that. But what I'm saying is, is that we often separate ourselves from our suffering because we don't want to deal with it. With We're, we're maybe, right? Just maybe, just maybe, God wants to use that suffering, right, that pain to do something in you and through that suffering that he couldn't do without it or that you would not let him do without it. You know what, you know what pain and suffering does? It gets our attention that something is wrong. You know why we have pain receptors on our body? Helps us to get our attention that something is wrong. Oh, something is wrong. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. It's wrong. What is causing you pain and suffering? Where are you hurting? Where where are you trying to avoid the the pain? Maybe, maybe... Maybe what we leave with this morning is asking God to show us what that pain is trying to produce in us. Lord, what are you trying to what are you trying to like enlighten or uncover or shine a spotlight on in my life through this? Let me see what this pain is uncovering. Allow God, right? Allow God to say this. I've said it a hundred times here. I'll say it again. You know, it's amazing that when we ask God questions that, um, for lack of a better term, increase our righteousness or holiness, he's super quick to answer. And usually super blunt. And it usually starts out something like, well, first you've got to die to yourself. You've got to pick up your cross. Because, listen, sometimes pain and suffering doesn't even just have immediate circumstances or immediate like um, consequences and circumstantial consequences, but, but pain and suffering is part of God's eternal plan as well. The rest of this passage, and we're going to close with this. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone if they gain the whole world, yet they forfeit their soul? Or what can one give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. 
Listen, the context in which Jesus is talking about the reality of pain and suffering in our following to him is not even um, a context of immediacy, like right now. It's a context of future glory. So he's like, your suffering now is going to produce in you a future glory that far outweighs them all. I'll close. I'll close the sermon this morning as the band comes up and invite them back up with this uh, portion of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the words of Paul who kind of echo this idea that, that suffering is eternal in its redemptive purposes. Suffering is not just about now. It's about the future. It's about glory. It's about hope. You might be in Good Friday right now. Easter is coming. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, Paul says this. He says, Therefore we do not lose, lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, for what is seen is temporary, but we fix our eyes on what is unseen, for what is unseen is eternal. Your suffering is producing an eternal glory for you and in you. Die to yourself. Embrace what God is doing in you and experience what he has for you.